0: Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your study. All right, so we're going to start. This morning, this is going to be two sessions in a row, and we're going to look at the crucifixion. And we're only going to look at the crucifixion through the lens of Mark. And every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, tells the crucifixion story slightly different. There's a lot of things that are the same, but there are things that are different. And we're going to look at Mark, and he's going to have some very specific details in a very particular order. And we're going to say, what's he up to? And what scholars think, what Mark is telling us, is there's a procession that moves towards the cross and that that procession
1: is a coronation ceremony. And it comes from the Roman culture. Mark puts it in an
0: order that that speaks to the culture. Now, for those on video, and I'm just going to say this for those listening online, right now, this class is taught every Sunday morning. It's live, and then we put the recording on YouTube, so that's what you may be seeing on YouTube. We're going to change our format, and we're going to move it to midweek. Not sure of the date yet, but midweek or what day of the week, and then it's going to go broader. We're going to actually have it live. Uh, There's going to be a way to sign up if you would like to join live. Many people would rather do a live class. It'll be via Zoom. And um, that will be coming soon. And just pay attention to our videos or any announcements, and then you can go to our website and uh, there will be announcements on it too. But we're changing the format. So what I need to do is four years ago, we started the Book of Mark in this class that I met so we're going to do the conclusion. We're going to do that. We, we got almost to the end and a pandemic hit and we took a year and a few months off. So this is where we're at today. We're going to do the last two bits of Mark because then the format's going to change. Okay, so that's, this is what I'm talking about now. We'll be changing our format to a midweek live Bible study via Zoom. So if you're interested in that, you can go to our website, figtreeteaching.com, sign up for any announcements, and it'll be open to a broader audience and midweek so that more people can join. But that's our intention and why we're making a switch. So just pay attention to that via our website, and you'll hear more about it, particularly on any announcements from our videos. All right, so here's what we're going to look at. Mark is going to show the crucifixion as a coronation. Another word is Roman triumph. And there's an article that I put in the uh, description section below this video. It's also on the handout, and I have a whole bunch of footnotes on the handout, because we're going to go back through what we did. I think it was class number one when we started Mark to talk about the Roman Empire and the cultural context within which Mark is writing. Scholars assume Mark is writing from Rome to an audience that understands Rome in Roman context. Mark is writing to a Jewish audience, but they're in Rome. And so he's underneath the nose of a Caesar writing an anti-Roman document. So you put it in code. Because if anyone says this is anti-Roman, you say, no, it's not. Show me. And if they read it and discover it's anti-Roman, well, that's their own self-discovery. So it's the way you write. It's how you write code when you want to write something that might be subversive to whatever was happening. So this is what we're going to do for the next two weeks. In your Bible, very specifically, we're, next week is what we're going to do, very specific. I'll give you one example today, but in your Bible, Mark 15 is where we'll be today. That's not only a discussion that leading up to the coronation ceremony, but Mark 6, 15 verses 16 to 25 is what we'll look at next week. Verse by verse, detail by detail that will show, God willing, how Mark is telling the story that will cause every one of his audience members in Rome to say, I know what he's telling us. Jesus is the king, and this is his procession, his triumph. Now, it's the opposite of what you think, right? Kings are supposed to live and reign, and you reign with power, and you get authority and glory and all that. No, 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 not in God's kingdom you don't. It's the opposite. So, it's actually pretty amazing if we have eyes to see what Mark is doing, and of course that takes some work because we're
1: 21st century Westerners. Okay. So, I think the message here is what Mark is telling us is that Jesus
0: is, in fact, the true king. Who is the king? Because his audience has a king, the Roman emperor, who declares that he's all kinds of things, as we'll see today. And Jesus is going to show up in that cultural context, and the, the gospel writers are going to say, oh, no, he's not. Jesus is king, but he's going to let you decide that. You have to come to that conclusion. God, is not, uh, God does not treat his, uh, his creation despotically. He's not a dictator. He doesn't demand
1: that you believe. He wants you to choose to believe and discover it for yourself. And then one of the things that when we say
0: something like this, Jesus is the true king, or Jesus is the son of God, or something like that, in the first century, we often say that, let me back up, we often say that as a theological proposition. We believe, we assent intellectually to this belief. Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is the king. And that's, a, to us, a theological proposition. You believe it or you don't, and then that's kind of how we Function theologically. But in the first century, that wasn't a theological proposition. It was a very real question Who's king? And your answer might, depending on who is emperor at the time, be life and death. This is not a theological proposition.
1: It's real world. And when you say Jesus is king and it means Caesar isn't, watch out. Watch your head. As we'll see, watch, oh, this is wonderful, watch your head. Is that what you said, watch your head?
0: Yes, and wait until we get to the end. All right, so the crucifixion, um, we're going to call it, I I titled it as a coronation. It's a ceremony. A coronation is a ceremony that shows you someone becoming king. N.T. Wright has a book, How God Became King. And it goes through all of the stuff that we're talking about, using the Roman culture to say Jesus is now king and he is king. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He's the king. But coronation is obviously a word that we would use regarding a king. And then in the Roman world, or a phrase, the Roman triumph, this is a type of propaganda. It's Roman propaganda. It started with generals back when Rome was a a republic. Generals who win a battle come back, they go through a Roman triumph, and they say, look at the power and might and greatness of Rome. We are number one. And by the time Rome becomes an empire, Caesar Augustus, and then into the first century, only the emperors are allowed to do a Roman triumph. So when Mark writes this, the time he's writing it, there's only one person
1: who can do a triumph. And that's the Roman emperor. So it's real-world implications for Mark and his audience when
0: they read it and say, aha, and know what Mark is telling us. So Mark, we have to think about when Mark is writing his, this book, what are the contexts of this book? Because there's two very distinct contexts within which Mark writes his book. The first one is what we mostly focus on. That's Judaism, first century Judaism. It's the culture. It's Jesus tells a parable. When he says this, what does he mean? Why didn't they like tax collectors? What was up with the Samaritans? Um, It's Judaism. What were the zealots? We just spent five weeks looking at zealots. That's Judaism, first century. And Mark is speaking to Jews or Gentiles who believe in God and study the Old Testament. His background is Judaism. The Jewish Messiah that would be king is a Jewish idea. So Judaism is the first one. We have to know that cultural context. But the second one is the Roman Empire, and that's the greater empire around it. And if you understand the Roman Empire and the symbolism and the language that they used, kind of like when we did the the book of Revelation, you understand that they're writing against that Roman Empire.
1: It's a direct opposition. Two kingdoms are colliding. God's kingdom and man's kingdom, which side are you on? And it's not just the Roman Empire. Within the Roman Empire, it's something that's called the
0: Imperial Cult. Uh, we have a whole video on this. I'll put a link to that video in the description section below this. B- below this video, the Imperial Cult. It was a sanctioned worship of the Emperor. Started with Caesar Augustus. It would. Uh, Wayne and, you know, f- go un- w- people wouldn't be as enthusiastic about, say, Caligula or something, even though he saw himself as a deity. Maybe Claudius wasn't the guy that you wanted to worship. But it starts with Caesar Augustus, and by the time John is writing Ephesus, you get something that looks like this in the town of Ephesus, and that is the temple to Domitian. And Domitian is going to revive what Caesar Augustus started, and he's going to demand that you call him Lord and God,
1: and that he's divine. And if you say, no, you're not, Jesus is, what did you just set yourself against?
0: The power of Rome. And the Christians felt the sting of that. And so it's a real-world question. When you can't buy and sell in the marketplace, you want to sell your watermelons or your pottery, but you got to worship Domitian to do it. This isn't just, uh, you know, something to think about. It's real-world, difficult decisions to make. This, by the way, let me show you there. So that's only one little section. Let me show you the uh, artist rendering. That's the full—it They it was a massive thing. So what you're looking at, this right here, is just the facade. It's like two of these little columns, right? Like right in there. Those two columns are what we see right here in that picture. Behind it is, a, is the ground, a hillside, and they would have built the temple now is right here. That's the temple. There's an altar to Domitian, and that's a massive worship site to worship the emperor. This was a big deal. Worthy of a god, and that's big deal in the east. And that's where John is writing Revelation from
1: and you might be demanded that you worship the emperor. What do you tell your kids or your grandkids? It's tough. Are you going to go along with it or not?
0: Do you cross your fingers behind your back and say, well, he's not really Lord and God, but I'll just say it so we can get by? Now, those are all the decisions you have to wrestle with. So, that's the one in Ephesus. Um, this is the one that kicked it off. This is, the, there's a, this is an altar at the city of Pergamum. They were the first city to say to Caesar Augustus, in 26 BC, we will make our
1: city what's called Neochorus, the temple keeper for the worship of Caesar, Caesar Augustus. You're going to offer incense on that altar? He was the Caesar when
0: Jesus was born. So this is the imperial cult. and the language of the new, that the new testament writers use over and over again and paul is imperial cult language because they're setting up this idea that jesus is lord not the caesar not the person you're calling god and if we don't know that we'll abstract it we all, we all too often read we abstract our text and we don't understand the full context of where what we're reading to realize the real world implication. And this is constantly happening in the world. Who do you call Lord? That's it. The moment human power comes in and some, you start calling them Lord. Well, that's where all the problems start. So, okay. So the Imperial cult, let me show you, um, let me see where we're at. I got I need to, Okay, number three, language of the imperial cult. We've re- this is all review for those who have been with us for this long. This long four years that we've been doing this, we've gone over this a number of times because too often we live in our own we live in our own culture and read our text through our own cultural eyes instead of saying, Hey, wait a minute, let's go back to that first century. That's biblical studies is go back to the culture and history and say what are what are they saying. And let's make sure we interpret that correctly before moving on to theological doctrine. So, imperial cult. For instance, the imperial cult, the good news, is the announcement of a king for the imperial cult. cult. Now, it's also in Isaiah. Isaiah announces the good news that there's a king is coming back. Jerusalem, aren't you happy? So I, it, goes, it goes back to Isaiah. It goes back further than that. It goes, the writings of Homer talk about the good news when you, when the gods deliver you a message. So the good news has a thousand years of, of historical use for kings and gods. And so the Romans said, look, it is good news that Caesar Augustus was born. There's a, uh, on your handout, I put a link. It's a Wikipedia page to a, an inscription. We've read it a number of times in this class, and it's an inscription from Pre-NA, which is in Turkey.
1: And the the inscription says, we celebrate the good news of the birth of Augustus, our God. His birth was the good news for the world. Okay,
0: next one is the Roman triumph. This is what we're going to do next week. The Roman triumph or a coronation is something Paul says. Uh, writing before Mark, we think that it's like a triumphal per- procession that Jesus leads us in. So he's using the language of the the Roman triumph in his letter to Corinthians. Uh, there's a emperor's advent, the arrival of an emperor. Well, we have Advent season every year around Christmas. We celebrate the advent of Jesus. Well, they had an Advent season
1: or an advent of the emperor. In fact what are we waiting for? The second Advent,
0: right? And there's a group of Christians who back in the 1800s studied their Bible and said, wait a minute, the reason Jesus isn't coming back, second Advent, is because we're not worshiping on the Sabbath. We need to honor the seventh day. So the seventh day Adventists want to usher in the second Advent by going back to the Bible and worshiping on the Sabbath. That's why Seventh-day Adventists worship on Saturday. So we have, it, we have an entire denomination of Christianity that is all about the Advent. A parousia, this is a return. Same thing, we're talking about the return. Paul uses the word that says when Christ returns, we're all going to get caught up with him. A return is the king shows up. Uh, you have an earthquake. There's a fire. The government shows up and says, here's a bunch of money. I'll be back in about a year and see how you did. And when the when the king returns, everyone wants to show them what they did. It's a parousia, a big event in the Roman world that the emperors would do. And then um, apotheosis. Apotheosis is the elevation of someone to a god-like status or sitting at the right hand of a god. So Jesus' ascension is an apotheosis. And they all said, Oh, the Roman emperors have an apotheosis. Julius Caesar, we saw a comet go up in the sky. That means he's, he's sitting in, in heaven as a god, and his son, Augustus, is now the son of God. And, the, and it flows downhill. Every time an emperor dies, somebody claims to see a comet. He's ascending to heaven. And so Jesus does the same thing. And so we'd say, well, who's sitting at the right hand of God? That's the question. Let me show you just to make sure you know I'm not just making this stuff up. This is, a, is Titus. So Titus, uh, that's the Arch of Titus. And the Arch of Titus celebrates the sack of Jerusalem. There's a, there's a, uh, it's a relief of them carrying away the menorah. And if you notice, here's Titus. Here's Titus. That's him in the back. And you notice there's an eagle right in front of him. That's an eagle. He's riding in the eagle's wings up to heaven. That's called, you, can, you can Google the apotheosis of Titus and you'll get that picture. He's ascending to heaven to sit at the right hand of his father, which makes his then
1: next in line, Domitian, the son of God. And the question is, is Domitian the son of God? Is he going to bring order to your life? Nope. He'll bring more taxes. And the Roman emperors, it's power, it's might, it's war. And after we destroy you, then
0: we can have peace. That's the opposite. The Christian way is we're going to form a covenantal relationship. It's about relationship. There's forgiveness. That brings about peace. So there's It's the exact opposite of the way the world does business. And I think Rome is just the representative of the world. Okay, I mentioned a couple times Caesar Augustus, because this is the person who was on the throne when Jesus was born. And that's what, when we did the Christmas story, you set Jesus' birth against this guy. If we miss that, we miss a big piece of what the Gospels are telling us, what the stories are, what the Gospel writers are communicating to us. So, for instance, Luke, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. So we know that Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And, oh, by the way, his, one of his titles was Son of God because Julius Caesar ascended to heaven after his death, making Augustus Son of God. How do you feel about that? Why does... Uh, when they're walking to Caesarea Philippi and they walk past a temple to Caesar Augustus that was built by
1: Herod the Great and then Jesus says, Who do you think I am? And Peter says, You're the son of the living God. You're not the son of the dead God. You're the son of the living God.
0: Now, I don't know where that is, but it says in the area of Caesarea Philippi and only... Four miles away from Caesarea Philippi is a temple to Caesar Augustus, calling him Lord and God and the Son of God. So that fits. Can you imagine Jesus stops with that temple in, right over his shoulder, and his disciples are looking at him and the temple in the background, and he says, who do you, who do you think I am or say I am? Ah, you're the Son of God. It makes, a, it makes a, just a brilliant picture. And his, it would make his, not that Jesus' teachings are need to be amplified more, but that would amplify his teaching. Okay, so this is a big deal. Caesar Augustus was called Lord. He was called Son of God because his father, Julius Caesar, was ascended, ascended to heaven. He was said to be divine. He was God from God. And that's why when you put his face on a coin, the zealots especially went nuts. We're not going to pay
1: taxes to that guy who calls himself Lord and God. Now, the reason I'm doing this, I have to at least build up a background
0: so that next week, when we get to this these, the short little story in Mark, you recognize he's drawing He's, putting, he's doing two things. He's taking the events, and he's putting them in a, in a manner that would cause you, as a, someone who lives in Rome, to
1: think about the emperor. And then you have to ask the question, which one is Lord and God? It's brilliant. All right, so crucifixion as a coronation. That's really the, that's the main gist.
0: As you see Jesus going to the cross, it's
1: saying this is him being elevated in status as the king. And all of the Gospels do the same thing, but they do it through the language, the symbols,
0: the communication of first century thinking. And if you're questioning the Roman Empire underneath the nose of Caesar, then you better do it in a way that is doublespeak.
1: So you can plausibly deny that that's what you meant. Because the Rome, would, Rome would boycott, they, they would uh, burn any scrolls that were anti-Rome. You
0: can't question the authority of the Roman emperor. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Let's, uh, I want to show you a couple things of the way that Mark tells this this story. It's in the literary telling of the story. That you see the details jump out at you but if you don't know it's there well you will just read right past it so the first one is and this is we've done this so many times in this class I really want to just get it on the video because it's so this is such a it's such a cool one if you know it's there it's called Inclusio and Inclusio is a people who make movies today do this they start the movie with one thing and it's kind of like what are they talking about And by the time you get to the end it's the same scene and you go, ah, I know what they're talking about. You begin with something, you end with something, and that, that kind of forms like an envelope, and it says everything in between is pointing to that. So it kind of summarizes. It's a way to summarize. You find inclusio in small paragraphs. You find inclusios in entire letters. So inclusio looks something like this if we graphically depict it. You start with an idea or a word or a concept or something at the beginning. You then end with the same idea, word, concept. And as you draw that out, if you know what you're looking for, literary device, you would say, Aha, that summarizes my message. That's inclusio, that's what it does. So let me give you an example. Don't turn there. I'll just do this really quick because you can check it out later if you'd like. But the book of Acts starts Acts chapter 1, ends Acts chapter 28. It's a wonderful inclusio here. So Acts chapter 1, very first thing that happens, Jesus is uh, resurrected. He's walking around for 40 days with his disciples and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming or teaching about the kingdom of God. That's how Acts starts. How does Acts end? Very last sentence of the letter, of the book. Paul
1: is in Rome, and he's proclaiming or teaching about the kingdom of God. In fact, the very last word of the book of Acts is this word that means unstoppable. The
0: kingdom of God is unstoppable. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God is advancing. That's the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem. It goes to Samaria or Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And even Paul is trying to get to the Caesar to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And can you stop it? No.
1: And man, from the beginning of time, tries to stop the kingdom of God. And they can't. So, it's a great, it's a
0: wonderful way to think to read the book of Acts through the lens of kingdom of God. And you'll see the Holy Spirit is just moving the entire way through, building that kingdom of God. Okay, so that's just one example of inclusio. It's a very powerful way to to try to look for what the author is telling you about the book. So what about Mark? Well, let's look at Mark. Mark 1 and Mark 15. I'm going to 15 because if you read your little footnote on chapter 16, the scholars question when that was added to the book. Um, So I'm going to stick with chapter 15. Mark 1. Jesus is baptized. A voice from heaven comes out and says, this is my son. And who's the voice? God. So he's declaring Jesus is what? Son of God. You get to the very end of the book. And if you want, you can look this one up. This is Mark 15, 39, because we're going to be there in, in chapter 15.
1: Mark 15, 39 is a Roman centurion, a representative of Rome. He's looking up at the cross, and what does he say? Surely this man is the Son of God. What's the point of Mark's book? Jesus is the Son of God, and the problem
0: is, if you say that, who is it an affront to? Caesar! Caesar! It's not just a theological proposition that, well, let me think about that, and maybe one day I'll assent to the idea that he's the Son of God. That's not the point in the first century. The first century is, if you call him the Son of God, it means Caesar, this guy, isn't. And now you have a problem. Depending on who's in charge at the time, and how radical they want to be about their, the way that they are going to
1: control things. Maybe you can't buy and sell. Maybe you are marginalized from society. How important is it to have a strong community if there's a
0: possibility
1: of you being uh, pushed aside, not being able to participate in the economy? Yeah, it's stated by a Roman. So when we look at this idea of son of God, that statement by a
0: Roman soldier If you're a first-century person in Rome, even if you're Jewish, you're
1: like, "Uh uh-oh. That's competition for Caesar. So it's very raw first century. Again, 2,000
0: years later, we mostly read it theologically, and we've abstracted it, and we're, you know, by and large, a Christian nation. So you don't really, you don't have these problems that you do. Now, there are places in the world where you do have these problems. Because if you go to North Korea and say Jesus is Lord, it means the Kim family isn't. Uh Uh-oh. Because they have statues of the Kim family as deification of that family. So, again, why did they get rid of churches in North Korea when they became communists? Because they're, they're Lord and God, not Jesus. So it's... Okay, my whole point is this. When we get to the end of Mark, the question is, who's the real king? And we're going to present, they're going to present Jesus as becoming the king, but it's, an, it's through an entirely different
1: path. The Via Sacra in Rome, the sacred road that leads up to the place where you
0: proclaim your triumph, then we're going to compare that to the
1: Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. Oh, in the kingdom of God, how do you become king? Suffering. And we love being kingdom people. We're not too excited about being cross people. We prefer to have to do this without the suffering. So, is Jesus king? And this is
0: what's going to happen. So this is just kind of a, we'll do it a little bit today as an introduction, and then next week we'll dive really deep into Mark 15 and those verses about the procession. So you have a, a Mark 15, and if you want to turn there, go ahead. We'll, we'll be there in a minute reading th- this part right here. It's a conversation. It's a lead-up conversation. And the whole, all the question that keeps going back and forth is, are you the king of the Jews? It's a great conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Now,
1: just before that, the, the Jews are arguing, are you the Messiah? They don't call him the king of the Jews yet. Are you the Messiah?
0: And you have to decide, well, is he God's Messiah or not? And, oh, by the way, the prophecy is God's Messiah will eventually become the ruler that the entire world bows down to. So, if you know that much, you know that king of the Jews means everyone's bowing down to me. All right, so there's a lead-up conversation. We'll read the conversation in a minute with Pilate. Especially, this is a wonderful conversation to read particularly after doing five weeks on the zealots. Because things will now stand out about the conversation based on our discussion of the zealots. Okay, then you get this little section, verse 16 to 32. That's the triumph or the coronation. And I'll show you that next week. Detail after detail after detail that comes right out of that Roman culture that says, this is how they're making him king. And then... We get to this verse, Mark 15, 26, and what's the final analysis? He's king of the Jews, is what the
1: sign says. And every gospel ends with this declaration. Who's king? So, this is our big question and what Mark is telling us. And, you know, again, well, I'll show you. It's wonderful. God wants you to come to this conclusion on your own. It's wonderful to watch even how Jesus interacts with Pilate. He doesn't answer the question. You figure it out. It's great. And when you try to force people into the kingdom of God, it doesn't work. It has to be a process of self-discovery. Same issue.
0: It's, we, we're, it, humanity has not changed. It's human nature. And... You know, the other thing is there's a wonder, there's, there's power in creating a message that you have to read below the surface, that you have to, that's often maybe in double speak or in deeper meaning. Because when you discover the deeper meaning, it's a process of self discovery that transforms you on the inside. If Jesus gave you all the answers right on the surface, eh, there might not be any transformation. But when you discover that the message underneath the text, it transforms you, and you don't even know it's doing it, because it's self-discovery. That's what Jesus wants you to do. That's the whole power of telling a parable. Okay, Ugh, I'm, well, I, I started late, and so we're running a little bit behind, but okay, here we go. Let's read this. Let's just read this, this quick conversation between Jesus and Pilate. So the, the Sanhedrin has decided, enough with this guy. He's annoying us because everything he does works out, and we're annoyed, so we're going to try to get rid of him, because that's what we do uh, as humans. So they take him, Jesus, over to Pilate, because, hey, we don't want blood on our hands. Let's convince Rome that he's trying to subvert Roman power. That's what Luke says. Luke includes a detail that says, "Uh, Jesus is against paying taxes. That's the zealots. And that's what they're going to try to do, is paint him as a revolutionary. Okay, verse uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, so that's a whole bunch of people, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So now he's over in the Roman governor's uh, court, and first thing Pilate says, are you the... Yeah, there's the that's the main gist of this whole conversation, right? Because Mark is going to have to take a conversation that's been said and only give you the parts that he wants you to hear. God gave Mark editorial control over the details that he puts in his letter. And that's it. And we have to know that it's a, it's a dynamic process of inspiration that is between the writer and God. And so the writer then highlights things or uses techniques that his audience would understand. And are you the king of the Jews? And so now you get this question. Well, Pilate, What do you think? So Jesus doesn't even answer. And I love that because he wants you to discover that yourself. You have said so. He barely says a word during this whole interaction. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate again asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? And how does Jesus respond? What would we do if we were being falsely accused? Lawyer up? yeah, we'd be, we'd be hiring lawyers.
1: We'd be banging the table saying we didn't say that. He doesn't do any of that. He just stands there and lets you figure it out. Okay, so that's verse 3. Next, verse 4. But Jesus still
0: made no reply. And look at Pilate. You can't figure this out. This isn't the way of the world to stand there and allow these accusations to come at you. Okay, now, this, now he's going to add, now we have a detail. That's going to introduce some zealot stuff, right? Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas, remember? Bar is the Aramaic word for son. Abba is father, so this guy's name is son of the father. Barabbas, yeah, think he represents all of us in some way, shape, or form? The son of the father, Barabbas, was in prison. He was with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. What does that sound like? Zealots. Yeah, after five weeks of zealots, it's like, oh, that's the zealots. So Barabbas is a zealot. They're going to release him, and they're going to crucify a guy who didn't do anything. Because that's what we do in the world. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did. Again, Pilate's going to throw out the question again. Do you want me to release to you? Let me just say it again, just in case you didn't get it. King of the Jews, we're going to reiterate it. And Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him, he knows that they're falsely accusing him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Next. And this part, uh, I'm just every time I read it, I kind of get blown away because look what he asks: "What shall I do then for the third
1: time with the king of the Jews?" Pilate asked them. "Crucify him." What do humans do to the ideal? We murder it. You murder the ideal. You have a guy who hasn't done anything wrong. You have a guy who's
0: sinless. Everything works out to his advantage. It makes you look bad. So what do you do? You murder him. Where, do we he- where have we heard this story before? Tell me about a guy who didn't do anything wrong, who was righteous, and then was murdered. Cain and Abel. We talked about it last week. Cain and Abel is the foundational story of humanity. What do you do
1: to the ideal? You kill it because you're annoyed by it. What did Abel do wrong? Nothing. Cain was annoyed that his brother, everything worked out for his brother. Here's the way it goes. The ideal, the ideal becomes a judge. And when you feel judged, it exposes all of your faults.
0: You're ashamed and you eventually become angry. That's Cain and Abel. And what do human beings do today when when they're confronted with the ideal? It exposes all of our faults. The person at work who was a valedictorian of their class and homecoming king or queen, does everything right on the job, has a perfect smile, is charming, funny, everybody loves them, and they expose all of your faults. After a while, you become
1: annoyed angry, and in your heart, you begin to kill them. That's what we do to the perfect.
0: That's the story of Jesus. That's what his brothers are doing to him. So it's the same old story of humanity. What crime has he committed, said Pilate? There is no fault here. Kill him anyways. So that's human nature. It's just the reflection. It's the reflection of Cain and Abel. It's a reflection of human nature. You have to have strong character to not murder the ideal. And you have to be able to forgive. And that's the message. It's the message of Genesis. It's the message of Jesus. Okay. And then here's the final sentence. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas. Then he has Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And then next week, we're going to roll into this whole idea of the procession that's about to happen. Because then Mark says, oh yeah, you think that's just being put to death? Oh no, 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 he's being made king. And this is how it happens in God's kingdom. So, uh, let me show you one thing, and this is not in your notes, so you'll have to come back next week, because we'll reiterate this next week. This is the teaser for next week, that Mark 15, 16 to 32, is a coronation ceremony. And I'm going to show you one detail, and it's one out of about ten where you'll start to go, "Uh uh-huh, something's going on here. Okay, it's a coronation ceremony, or what's called a Roman triumph. Now, Roman triumphs had been going on for a long time as the generals would win a battle. The Roman triumph eventually becomes only for the emperors. So in, in Mark's day, it was only Nero, if we assume Mark is writing in the 60s, and Nero had a number of triumphs. So what do you do in a Roman triumph? Well, there's a set order to it. It's just like inauguration day. We know the order that they're going to go on because the order has been set. So a Roman triumph, they're in Rome and they end
1: they end the triumph at this place. Now, that's the modern version of this place.
0: I'll show you a artist rendering in a minute, but this is Capitoline
1: Hill, in Rome. It was where the Temple to Jupiter sat. So, in your, in your triumph,
0: you go through the streets of Rome, the Via Sacra, the sacred road, up to Capitoline Hill, where the Temple of Jupiter is, because that's where you make the sacrifice to the God. Okay? Now, that's the modern-day picture. This is what it, an artist's rendering uh, of what it looked like. It was one of the seven hills of Rome. In fact, it was the Capitol Hill of Rome, Capitoline Hill. So this right here, that inside that circle, that would be the temple to Jupiter, and you would make your way through the streets and up to that to offer your sacrifice. Okay, to the god Jupiter, whose Zeus in the Greek world is Jupiter. It's the main high
1: god. All right? Now, that's the Temple of Jupiter. There we go. Now, why why Capitoline Hill? Okay? This will just make you laugh. I think, in a way, it makes you chuckle. Um, the word for head, head, in Latin, caput. Caput means head. So, what's the place called? Head Hill. It's Head Hill. It's the place of the head. Where do we Where do we write laws in this country? Capitol Hill. It's the Head Hill. All right. Now, how did they get that?
0: How did they get to place of the hill? Well, when they were excavating the foundation, this is the, okay. There's a myth. It's a. It's a a legend that goes around. When they're excavating the temple to
1: Jupiter, they found a skull, a head. And they said, aha, this
0: is now Head Hill, and it will be the head hill for all of Rome. So there's, uh, this is uh, from, by the way, there's an article that I put on your uh, handout. You can find it online by Thomas uh, Schmidt and we'll reference it next week, but this is in the article, so you can read this quote in that article by Schmidt. You can find that article online, by the way. So, this is one of the the prophets of Rome. Romans, tell your fellow citizens, it is ordered by fate that the place in which you
1: found the head, that's where you found the skull, shall be the head, the capital of Italy. So there was apparently this head, it was a skull. The place
0: of the skull. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, hold on a second. There's another word for skull in uh, Latin, calaveria. Calvary. Where does Jesus go to be sacrificed? To head hill. The place of the skull. The place of the head. Now, Golgotha is Aramaic. Okay, so check this out. This is the Temple of Jupiter on Capitol Hill. That's where that's where the Roman procession ends and the sacrifice
1: takes place. Ah, so Mark says this. Fifteen twenty-two. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, or in Latin, Calvary. Calaveria is the place.
0: The word for skull, caput is more head. Skull is calaveria which means the place of the skull. And Golgotha
1: is, uh, it actually comes from the Hebrew for head, although, but it can be translated skull. What's going on here? And, you know, scholars have puzzled to try to find the place of the skull.
0: It's totally cool because Mark is saying, and you'll see every detail leading up to this comes from the Roman now, again, I, I don't want to get into, was it literally called Golgotha? Is he inserting that? Was there a place called Head Hill in Jerusalem? There was a place for crucifixion, we know that. The point is, if he's painting this as a
1: Roman triumph, then you have to make a decision. Which one's true? And in the first century, like I said, that's... and the cool thing, again, I don't think
0: we quite get this because it replaces. The Roman way is power, it's might, it's a triumph. We bring uh, captives because we just, we just crushed the enemy with us. We're going to put some of them to death. We're going to show you how powerful we are, and we ourselves are gods. And then you get to this one, and you have Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. In God's kingdom, it's
1: suffering, it's humility, it's forgiveness. That's how you become king. it's backwards and you ascend by lowering yourself and it's backwards to the way human
0: beings think about the world. So it's an amazing picture when you see it's a complete reversal of the way that, and it's a direct reversal from the Roman way. Okay. That's cool. And we'll go through every
1: single detail. We'll, we'll cover this one again, but I just wanted to show you that one little detail. Capitol Hill Okay, you just, re- you just reminded me of something else about Mark that we'll have to, I'll have to do a P.S.
0: Okay, so that so what's the message of Mark? Well, it's, it's about Jesus and who he is, and then you have to make a decision. He's the Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. But Jewish Messiah, which we say Christ, is the anointed one who will become king. And according to the Jewish prophecies, when that king shows up, the all, whole world is going to worship him. So if you know that prophecy, that subverts your power here on earth. He's the true son of God, not the Caesar. So that's another way of, that Mark is going to tell us he's the son of God. He's the real king.
1: And then finally, you be, it's how you become king. You become king through sacrifice and humility and forgiveness, not through power. So in God's kingdom, everything is reversed, which is really hard for human beings to accept. It's very difficult
0: in the moment to allow yourself to suffer, knowing that that's the path to go. It's very difficult to do. Okay, so next week, we're gonna, you can go, go and read that little—you can even find Schmidt's article. You can read that ahead of time if you want. But read that little section of Mark about the procession and notice every detail. And how it goes in order. And then we'll talk through a Roman triumph and you'll see how those details go in order. Okay, so that's what we believe crucifixion is coronation. This is part one of two. Next week will be part two. And um, let me, I'll throw out here's my little, another teaser. I'll answer this question next week. In the book of Mark, Mark says when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says the guards came in and. There was apparently one of the people there who had on his uh, undergarment and the Romans went to grab him and he ran away naked. Read that in Mark. And scholars think that's Mark inserting himself into the story as John, like John says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, doesn't say his own name, that Mark inserts himself into that story as the guy who ran away naked. Now, the question is, why? And us Westerners try to come up with a logical answer. But he's, he's a Jew in Jerusalem, and you only have one place that you ever consult, and that's your Old Testament. So check it out. There's something about running away naked. Where is it at in your Old Testament? That's the second teaser.